Welcome to Female Empowered, a podcast for female fitness and wellness professionals and business owners looking for real talk about the ins and outs of the industry. I'm Krista Gurka, an accidental entrepreneur turned founder and CEO of a multi-million dollar health and wellness business. In this podcast, I'll be sharing expert insights and having real conversations about what it means to show up, thrive, and of course, get paid. We'll talk about what works, what doesn't, and what really happens behind the scenes of a client-based business. All so you can take away sound advice and actionable steps that help you become a more successful and confident business owner, all on your own terms. So let's dive in. Today's episode is a Female Friday feature. These are real, raw conversations I have with fellow female professionals. We talk about how they got their start in their individual specialties, their business journeys, their challenges. We have some laughs and maybe some tears along the way. I think having these conversations is so important because it's validating to see that there's no one right way to find success in this industry. If you're interested in being a guest on a future Female Friday episode, I'd love to hear from you. Email me at Krista at PilatesInTheGrove.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-A at PilatesInTheGrove.com. Now let's meet today's guest. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining me for another edition of Female Fridays. And now this is a whole episode on Female Empowered. And I've had Jennifer on before. She was one of my first Female Friday um, interviews. And now that it's a full um, podcast, I really wanted to have her back. So I have Jennifer here with me. So Jen, why don't you go ahead, Dr. J Pop, and introduce yourself (laughs) and let everyone know who you are. Yeah, thank you for having me on again. I'm excited. Um, Jennifer Hutton, I am a pediatric physical therapist out of Nashville, Tennessee. I am what we'll call an independent clinician right now. Um, And I am also the founder of Building Allyship, a community for healthcare professionals who are looking to be better allies or more effective allies to those in the BIPOC community. So yeah, that's me. Super cool. I love it. Um, I definitely want to get to the building allyship because you have some really cool things coming in up with your membership, but I do love your story about how you decided you want to become a pediatric therapist. So will you share that a little bit with us? Definitely. I mean, it it feeds actually right into what I do with building allyship, but um, I'm the oldest of 14 cousins. The youngest um, was born three months premature and spent three months in the NICU And they noticed development was a little bit off. So he went to all of the different therapies. He was diagnosed at the age of two with cerebral palsy. And I was able to attend some of his therapies as he was growing up. But I also was able to see how he was treated and affected out in the real world. So stuff like, you know, going to the park with his friends or going to Chuck E. Cheese and not being able to do everything like all the other kids and needing assistance. And so I already knew I want to do something to help kids like him not feel so othered in the world, but feel included. Um, So not just the special stuff for special needs kids, but no, how do we adapt spaces so that all of these kids can function in the same space? Um, And so I've said before that allyship came in and just watching him traverse through the world but then when I watched the doctor pretty much told my aunt he's never gonna walk 
you should just put him in a wheelchair and he never met my family. So my <laughs> aunt did everything under the sun that she could get her hands on. And he's now a 22 year old junior in college, um, studying psychology, walking over campus. So just seeing him defy what I, I call it limited medicine thought he couldn't. I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to help kids reach the goals that medicine thinks they can't just simply because of what they see. But I don't feel like we know everything about the body anyway. So why don't we just push the limits and see where we can go? Yeah. I mean, I think that's amazing. And I've always believed that the people that have a strong why for whatever it is that they do, um, it really pushes them through those tough times. Because I'm sure working in pediatrics, <laughs> it's very challenging, not only <laughs> physically, mentally, but emotionally working with children, you know, especially children with special needs or that have had, um, you know, transplants, heart conditions, mm. cancer, all, all of the above. All, all of the above. I literally have had all of those and, yeah. you know, I've lost kids and I've, I've seen kids pass away and it's just, it is, you become connected with that family. You're not just, oh, the therapist that they see weekly, I mean, I still have parents right now that I'm not seeing their kids and I haven't seen them in a year, but I'm getting the text messages when they're, you know, learning how to walk with their walker or she finally got her new braces or look what she's doing in her wheelchair. So you become a part of the team, part of the village. And, and so that it, it makes it, it makes it a difficult journey, but it's so worthwhile. Yeah, it's, it really is. And you become part of their family. It's so, it's so closely connected to them. I mean, it's a really strong bond you have like if you're the person that helps their child walk for the first time that hasn't walked or if you're working with children with autism and maybe you're the therapist that helps them say their first words or say mom mm -hmm. for the first time to that mother that's never heard that before that's a big that's it's a big huge. deal it's a yeah. huge milestone a and those deal. are the ones that I was excited to work with I worked with adults for two years and I was like they are worse than children Okay. I'm ready to go work with children. <laughs> I love the stuff that you um, post on social media with the kids and just celebrating the small wins, which I think is a really, really great lesson in life in general and your creativity with how to get them to navigate the world around them, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's like little obstacle courses or pushing on a scooter board or a skateboard yes. or something like that. So do you, I mean, do those things kind of just, cause I know working in orthopedics, sometimes things just pop into my head. I'm like, Oh, I could do that to mimic this. Mm -hmm. Do you get those same kind of revelations? Sometimes you're like, Oh, I could do this with the kids tomorrow. Definitely. Um, I, typically we'll take the goal and break it down and say, okay, what's the goal? All right. It's to be able to walk up three stairs. Well, can we walk up one stair? No. So let's figure out what we can create so that they can easily transition into this stair goal. And so breaking it down and then looking at what I'm, I'm really like, what's around me? What could I use like yeah. immediately? Um, and we used to have like where I worked before I left, there was a huge toy closet and if I ever got in a rut, if I felt like, okay, I'm using some of the same activities with this kid, I would say, I pick the goal, you pick the toy. Uh -huh. And they would, cause it was, they would, I was like, can I pick, can I pick? Sure. But just know I get to pick the goal. 
And so it was that trade-off. And then whatever they picked, I had to make it therapeutic around that goal. So it was like a quick moment where I had to think on my feet. All right, this is what we're going to do with it. So when I do get stuck, that's usually what I'll try. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty amazing. Because then that gets buy-in from them, right? They pick the toy. It's something they want to work with. Genius. Genius. <laughs> you need buy-in with it. I know they say with adults, but with children, even whew. more. Oh mm-hmm. my. Yes. yes. I feel like um, we're, we have a puppy now. And so we're training the puppy. And so I'm always bribing him with food to give, <laughs> take whatever he has in his mouth out. And I'm like, maybe I should have done this with my kids younger. Here's a snack. Do I'm well. Not above your bribing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm bribing. not above bribing at all. <laughs> so I love the stuff with the kids. It's amazing. But let's transition now into what you are currently doing and kind of give us that journey because yeah. super exciting. Um, so I know we were talking about this before, but I did always know that there would be a social justice awareness component in my business as I was building it. Um, I did not know what it was going to look like, but with the population that I worked with, I was like, oh, it's this is definitely going to happen. Um, so last year when the world woke up, is what I usually say, that's what <laughs> that whole period was. Everybody woke up and started to see, okay, everything these, that Black people have been saying for the last few years, I can see it now. It's, it's clear. Um, what do I do next? And that's what I saw amongst other professionals. What do I do though? What do I do? And there were so many different things being thrown out there. Read this book, listen to this person. You should have been doing this before. Da, 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 da. And it was so much. And I just took a step back and I was like, well, how can you help? And so I had always wanted to see diversity, equity, inclusion go a lot deeper than it did. Um, past getting just the voices in the room, past getting the numbers up, past just cultural competency. I felt like we were missing history. And it, to me, I mean, as therapists, as professions in the movement world, you know, you want to know from the beginning, how did we get to this point? And so I created the webinar, the Anti-Racism and Allyship. We went through from literally slavery, healthcare during slavery, all the way through to the Jim Crow era, um, talked about racial trauma, bias, all of those things, and then ended it with, here are the action steps you can take. And so when I finished it, I, I did not expect this to be the path that I took. So I kind of was like, okay, they're going to need something after this. And so people kept saying, I want a course. I want a course. And I was like, yeah, but people watch courses and then they don't, if they don't have it immediately in front of them to practice, then it's, there's no follow through or you buy the course and you don't finish it. Um, and I knew as a black woman in America, part of what gets me through is I have a community. I have, you know, a church family where everybody looks like me. And when I'm struggling on the weekends, well, before COVID, you know, I knew that was a place of respite. Or I have a group, I have three group chats that, you know, exist that when stuff like the Capitol being, you know, insurrection at the Capitol, I can go to those chats and say, do you see what's not happening to this group right now that would have happened to stuff like that, that you have to process. And I said, I have community. I have community and community is what keeps me in check, what lifts me up, keeps me aware. And I said, that's what I want to create. I want to create a community where 
it's a safe but challenging space for people to grow. And then it also uplifts marginalized people, Black speakers, BIPOC speakers, gives them a stage. So I was like, I, I, I want to create community for, for those who are looking to be better, but I also want to uplift those that I know need their voice to be heard. And so I was able to marry the two and create building allyship. So we opened the doors, was it September of last year? Um, it has been phenomenal. Like I, to see your dream come true. And I really just said, I want people to feel comfortable leaving this space and really you know, mobilizing as allies in the community. So we literally started with the head. Um, my belief is you start at the head because it affects what's in your heart, which means it affects what your hands do. And so we started to unpack, what do you believe? What did you believe in the past? Why do you believe it? Okay, now that you see that, how can we change some of these biases that you have? What can you do in your circles to you know, add more diversity, add more voices to it so that your perspective and your biases change? And now that your biases have changed and you have a new lens on life, how do you view what's happening in your spaces? And once you have that you know, trajectory, I have people that will just send me a message. Oh my goodness, this happened at this meeting and I was able to speak up because I remember what we talked about in this or you know, I was able to, to, to start something or start an initiative or bring people together to work on this one project so that we can dot, 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 dot. And so those stories literally just started pouring in in the last few months and I was like, okay, we're on the right path. Um, creating this community was the right thing to do. So. That, that has, it's been great for them, but I don't realize how much hope they realize it's given me um, to know that there are humans out there that will be fighting for people that look like me. Even if it's not me, there's just no better feeling really, especially yes. right now. <laughs> especially right now, yeah. And, and like you said, we were chatting a little bit before the recording here and I feel like you were made for this, you know? And I, I, whether it's your, your take on it, your ability to be strong, yet non-judgmental, not yet welcoming at the same time, mm-hmm. I think is very powerful. Um, I also think that it allows people like myself, for example, as a white person to say, I want to get it right. I don't want to be right. I want to get it right. Um, but I'm a little nervous to enter mm-hmm. this, you know, I'm a little nervous to admit some of the things that I believed, you know, mm-hmm. and so being able to come from a place of non-judgment and then realize later that my fear was part of like that whole systemic thing of how you were brought up, right? So mm-hmm. why do I, why did I react so strongly against other educators that were coming out and saying, Mm -hmm. you know, you white people, or you, you know, this, you need to get on with it. And me taking it on as anger, right? Why are they so angry? Mm -hmm. Um, Realizing later that that was my interpretation of it, right? And try to flip the script. Like if this were me, Uh you know, if this were me or my generation or generations to go or my two boys yeah. that I'll never have to have the conversation with them about what to do when they get pulled over by a police officer, mm-hmm. right? If those were my children, 
how angry would I be or how forceful would I fight for something? And then, you know, realize that that's my situation. And I also do believe too, that even as physical therapists, right? There's always people that you're going to mesh with really well. They mm-hmm. could all be phenomenal practitioners, but yes. there are just some people that you mesh with really, really well, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, professors we've had in our life that yes. the way that they interact. So I think that it's amazing. I've learned so much from being in your, so I'm part of building allyship and I've learned so much from that. I mean, the books that I've read have been amazing and truly eye-opening, truly eye-opening to really saying like, wow, how did I not know this? How have I lived my whole life as what I've considered an intelligent, you know, successful member of society Mm -hmm. and not know this information? It's It's amazing to me. It it is. It's interesting. I think I know my parents worked overtime, uh, you know, to share with me the things that I needed to know, to put me in the spaces where I would learn more about my history. I was I say lucky to go to an all black elementary school from first through seventh grade. So black history was all year round. There was no, I knew, I knew where I came from. I knew the history of black people in this country. And so knowing that I, when I got into a space where I had to look more, it was like, why do I have to dig deep? Why is American history? Why are we not talking about this? While I loved my American history teacher, why are we not dealing with this? because you would give you would give kids so much perspective to walk out into the world and understand oh well yeah it might be 300 years ago but this was the lineage of people so it's going to affect how we move through this world and so that's why I'm always like let me throw I want the history I want it all to be in there so that you can experience what I experienced as a child for sure right well that was going to be so that was going to be my question to you and I've you kind of answered it was that something you you had growing up so that your parents your cousins your family your extended like was this something you all talked about frequently the inequities and um you know the history of black people in the United States and across Mm -hmm the world, I would say, was that something Mm -hmm. that was frequently spoken about in your home? Yes. And partly they didn't have to do much when I was in elementary school because they knew where they sent me was going to provide that education. Um, But some of the history that I share that's on the negative side came through the conversations that you have to have with your child. Um, So, you know, at four years old was the first time a kid said, I won't play with you because you're a black kid. So then they had Mm -hmm. to have the okay, here's the history of the country when it comes to black and white people. Here, there are going to be some children who are taught these things in their home and they're not going to want anything to do with you. That doesn't change who you are, doesn't change how valuable you are, but that's the four-year-old Jennifer having that conversation. So immediately some of your innocence is taken. And then as you traverse through life, there are other you know, milestones that happen where they have to say, okay, Here's the next bit of history. There was a a point when I was leaving my elementary school and one of the schools on the table that I actually went to was an all girls, predominantly white institution. And I was like, I'm not having it. You cannot take me from this and put me in that. Like that's just the stark difference. So I mentioned a Christian academy 
um, that I knew of close to home that, you know, people are like, there are black people that go there. I mean, it's, it's mixed. It's, and my mom said, okay, here's the history of white flight schools. When the country was integrated, a lot of these private suburban areas created Christian academies that were attached to churches because they didn't want their children in integrated schools. I'm not putting you in an institution where that's the history. So and then you're at 14, you're like, I'm sorry, what? What? <laughs> what just happened so you learn like of course about slavery and you know Harriet Tubman and you know you learn all that stuff in school but then the the stuff that is just slipped through the cracks that people they would never talk about in school you learn as what well, I learned especially in the south as a black kid just growing up um and so that was that was my trajectory now I had more interest in it um of course as I got older and so I wanted to to say, okay, where am I from? <laughs> right. am, am I directly? Okay, I'm light-skinned. Let's be real. Is there a slave owner somewhere in my midst? Is like, what's going on? So I, you know, you learn more about where you came from, track it all the way back to whatever country you came from. So that was kind of how it went for me. Right. So interesting. So interesting. So let me ask you this. When you were going to an all-Black elementary school, Mm-hmm. Did you feel that, did you feel like everyone was like you? Did you know that there was part of a community? Like, did you know that there was an all white elementary school? Did you feel, I mean, so how does that work if your parents explaining to you the difference, mm -hmm. if you're surrounded by people that look like you and sound yeah. like you and yeah. have, and, and their families look like you? So the four-year-old incident, I was in Mother's Day out at a predominantly white daycare okay and then my kindergarten was at a predominantly white institution first through seventh was at predominantly black and then shifted into the predominantly white but throughout all of that um my parents i feel like they did a very good job of balancing our extracurricular activities mm -hmm. so my gymnastics you know gym <laughs> that was predominantly white my swim team, the only black girl um, playing tennis, usually two or three of us that were out there. So I had, I might've had, you know, the experiences of all black in one space, but I traversed enough through others that, you know, I, I understood how it worked. I just, it had been so long since I had been in a predominantly white institution by the time I got to eighth grade and then it was all girls. So, you know, there's that whole aspect of no boys and, uh, but, but by then it was like, okay, I, I just, I don't want to be in this space. I had had negative interactions outside of school that made me say, I don't want to go to a school where everybody acts like that. What if I do get treated differently because I'm black? What if I do have issues with teachers because, you know, they don't know our history and it ended up being an amazing experience. Um, mm -hmm. I love my high school. I still go back to my high school. I still am in touch with my teachers. I'm still a part of the alumni network and really connected. Um, but it was just that initial, okay, this is going to be really, 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 really different. And <laughs> you recognize that there's not going to be that many opportunities for you to be in a predominantly Black uh, community after that. Right. Um, I ended up going to a historically Black college after but most of those who go to you know undergrad schools say this is kind of it if we yeah. don't go to school at HBCU 
then your life is pretty much diverse, which is okay. We, we function, but it, there is a, there's a respite. There's a safety in being with people who look like you, who know your struggle outside of those four walls. Right. And I think it's also, um, well, so, cause I'm from, I don't look it, but I am Latin. And so mm-hmm. I grew up in a, in a Latin culture and mm-hmm. Latins are, there's very, there's a big culture to it as well, a mm-hmm. huge family dynamic. Um, and so I, I get that in terms of, I understand the things culturally that we do, like mm-hmm. kiss everybody. Hello. Even mm-hmm. though that's very weird to some people, you know, they, <laughs> COVID, I hopefully don't ever have to kiss people again, because I'm always like, get out of my space. Um, but there's things, the way we talk to each other, the chaperoning of mm-hmm. girls into, you know, there's there's a variety of variety of things. But I think you, like you said, you kind of are just, everyone does it. So like your best friend knows because her abuela does the same thing as your abuela, yeah. and like, you know, the same kind of thing. So and believe me, my mom wanted to send me to an all-girl Catholic school too. And the only thing I begged her was like, please, for the love of God, I will do anything, anything. Just please don't send me to that school. Um, you know, what to me was really fascinating, and maybe you could speak to this a little bit, was there are things that people do not even realize. Okay, so as you just said, when you were made, you were going to this, you were switching into a predominantly white school. Mm-hmm. Um, would the teachers treat you differently, right? And so in some of the, I can't remember what book it was, or maybe it was in a talk that you gave. I can't remember where it was, but how there's this underlying perception that either black children are not smart enough or are not doing their homework or something to that, that teachers, their studies, right? The teachers Mm -hmm. treat children differently. Mm and. Now, some teachers, obviously, there are people that are purposeful and intentful, you know, that's their intent. There's other people mm-hmm. that it's so, like you said, just kind of woven into mm-hmm. this bias that they don't even realize is there. Are you able to kind of speak to that a little bit and how that interweaves itself into our lives when people are not even aware that they're actually doing it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's we talk about bias and implicit bias Mm -hmm. and how a lot of your implicit biases come from experiences and beliefs that were instilled even if you don't know why they were instilled Um, and so when you look at the school system if you are always if the media if the news outlets are always pumping out um, information and statistics about the differences between learning of the different racial groups you can't help but consume that And if you're not actively, this is why we say allyship is an action word. If you're not actively trying to combat what you're being fed, then naturally it becomes a part of what you believe. So it may not be you walking into the room and saying, oh, this black kid is in here. I'm probably gonna have to be on her about her studies, but it could be something as simple as a comment that is made about her hair, you know, when she walks into class or, you know, the question would always be like, oh, is that all your hair? And what are braids? And you become a teacher and you realize I'm a student. I don't want to be a teacher. I want to just be a student in this moment. So those simple things like that we said are cultural, um, it, it becomes woven into part of your experience. So for school, Honestly, it was such a major shock in the curriculum 
that I didn't even have the energy to notice if there was any racial undertones because it was just, it was one jump from, I was acing, I was flying. And that's why my parents said, nope, we need to challenge you. And so I was too busy really trying to catch up mm-hmm. to what these girls had been in for three years. But when I got into high school, we had a disciplinarian person that was always riding the black girls. And I mean, all to this day, when I see her in the hallway, if I go visit, I have absolutely nothing to say mm-hmm. because it was very clear that she was creating, she had a narrative created. And so I had a whole bunch of demerits that we had tried to discuss with her issues and she just kept giving them because these are the rules and this is what has to happen. I had another friend, a black friend who, um, her mom bought her the wrong pair of shoes. Like you can only wear white tennis shoes. You can't wear anything with gray. Well, her mom said, that's nice. It's the first day of school. You'll wear these for a couple of weeks and then we'll get you some new shoes. She got demerits, even though the mom kept saying, we, we're gonna get her white shoes, I promise, to the effect of the person saying, oh, can you just not afford them right now? So those were the, I always say, those were the undertones where you're just like, I know why you're saying this and you don't know why you're saying this. Mm-hmm. If I immediately said that was a racist comment, you would be up in arms. And do I really want to deal with the emotional baggage of right. this experience? Probably not. So you suppress it right. and you just move on and you just say, you know what, we'll deal with it. So those are the things that I had to contend with. And I know that was nothing like what some of my friends were contending with in the public school systems where there weren't as many resources there were a lot of children in the classrooms and there were teachers that likely had the same beliefs and undertones that were threaded throughout. So yeah, that, that's how I can speak to it. Right. So would you, would that be considered microaggressions? Like a comment, like, is it that you can, are you able to afford it? Yes. So in that, let me ask you this then. So there's some books that talked about like white saviorism. Am I saying that correctly? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. That white people feel like they have to help Mm -hmm. marginalized communities Mm -hmm. if someone wanted to genuinely offer assistance Mm -hmm. right is there a way to go about I because I know well I I would assume you know in that school Mm -hmm. was it did you was it a tuition-based school Mm -hmm. so there were financial aid Mm-hmm. But they all knew who was on who the financial, financial aids. Yeah. yeah. So the funny thing was, so I was a bit, I went to a very expensive prep school and I was a financial aid kid. So mm-hmm. I was actually part of this whole, and I remember being like, I skewed through because I was white. Mm-hmm. So nobody, nobody made that assumption. Right. Yes. So I was the white kid that was mm-hmm. on full scholarship while yes. you're absolutely 100% correct. Everyone else knew the other financial aid or scholarship kids. But yeah. I was, I used to feel very uncomfortable about that. Are these people going to find out that I'm on financial mm-hmm. aid? What if, and on volleyball, they'd be like, oh, this is, you have to buy all of this gear and we have to, and I'd go home and my mom would be like, we can't afford this. Or I just bought you a pair of volleyball shoes. Those yeah. shoes cost a hundred dollars. I can't buy you a new pair of shoes. Right. Right. And so what is there a way that if there was, I mean, I know how I felt from that experience, right? Mm-hmm. So would there be something that you would recommend if, if there was somebody that genuinely wanted to offer help? Is there a way to navigate that situation without making the other person uncomfortable? Um, I would say the first question you ask yourself 
if you're trying to make sure that you're doing it right mm-hmm. is, am I assuming that this person is in need of help because of the color okay. of their skin? Correct. So it's a self check that you do first because okay. then it's okay. Is there any indication right now that they don't have what it needs or am I just projecting Got what it. I've been fed onto them? Mm-hmm. Um, in the school scenarios, and I can speak for the high school that I attended, they have created scholarships along with scholarships. So it is offered in the beginning, if there are any activities that your child Mm -hmm. wants to be a part of, please come to us and let us know because we've allotted this amount of money so that we can help take care of them so they don't feel othered and feel like, okay, I can't participate. They've always had that covered. So if it was a school, I would say, go to the administration and say, hey, I wanna make sure that kids have everything that they need. Is there a way that I can donate or put towards a child who wants to be in an extracurricular activity? That way you're, you're, you're not projecting it on that kid or that person to have to say, I need, you're still taking care of it. And if, if your impact is more important than you know, making sure someone knows that you have the money, which would be white saviorism, then you will be satisfied with being able to anonymously donate that money on behalf of that person. That's such a, that's such a great point, making it kind of like a general contribution. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Cause I mean, I can speak like it wasn't a good feeling. And I remember yeah. playing, I, I wanted to play club and that's an additional cost outside of school. Mm-hmm. And I remember my coach at one point walking into the locker room and being like, Oh, look, there's money on the floor. I don't know where this came from. He's like, oh, here, you were here with me. Just go ahead. I guess you could take it. And like, you know, so that she could pay for me to go to, to play club without, mm-hmm. you know, but it's, it's an uncomfortable situation. It and is. I think the truth is my mom was way too, pr- if anyone had said, we'll pay for it. Like my mom was way too proud to take any money. But I also know that as a parent, it was probably eating her because as a spoiled oh, yeah. teenager, I was like, well, why can't I get those shoes? Everyone else has yeah. them. You know, so it's it's definitely an uncomfortable situation, but I think that that's a great point. Just kind of don't like if there's a captain of the team that says, "Hey, we're going to collect a fund. Here's extra resources. If anyone you know needed them, they could go to yes. the coach or whatever the case may be." Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So there's definitely um, the. How would you then say? I get super curious. I'm like curiosity killed the cat. I'm always curious about everything. That's how I approach my job as a therapist, as a business owner. I'm just curious. So in that situation, say where you were just saying, do I really want to go here now and take on this person's like you maybe made a racist comment? Mm -hmm. Where do we draw like the line or where do you suggest to draw the line of educating that person to make them aware of it? or Mm -hmm. that you continue to accept the microaggressions and Mm. then nothing changes. Did I ask that question the right way? No, no, no. Do you know what I'm trying to say? No, yeah. So you're saying if you are 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 the person receiving it and then you're having to educate? Correct. How Um, much do you put off with like, I really don't wanna have this conversation. I really don't wanna have this conversation. I really don't wanna have this conversation. And then those people continue to do it because no one's brought it to their attention. Mm-hmm. It, it really, it depends. Um, it depends on the microaggression and it depends mm-hmm. on how much of a trigger that microaggression is. Um, it, 
a lot of the racial trauma stuff that I speak of is, is trying to manage the energy that you have throughout the day. <laughs> so if I know I need energy to make it through six classes, I'm less likely to sit down in the office and say, can I explain to you how this is a microaggression and how this comes from a racist belief? As a child, especially, I'm still forming the words <laughs> and you know the understanding to be able to explain it to you. The older I've gotten, I've taught kids you have to determine one if that person is willing to listen to you because if they are not then you will be wasting your energy mm -hmm. if it is an adult go get your mama or your daddy immediately let them fight that battle for you because that's what they are here for my mother came to many meetings and when i just said i i don't want to like i don't want to have to do this and i the things that my dad always laughed is that we would tell you <laughs> to handle it with an adult until you don't feel like you can handle it anymore. And once you feel like it's above your head, come get one of us. The problem is I would go really far and then my parents would come in and be like, well, we told her to handle it. We didn't tell her how. <laughs> we got to backtrack a little bit here. We're going to have to yeah, start rewind. to teach her. So then they had to start teaching me. These are the things that you can say. These are the things that adults need to say. But for me now, I, it's easier for me to just say, hey, identify if the person wants to, to hear it, if they're ready and willing to accept what I have to say, and then say, that made me uncomfortable. Here is why. Here's where that comes from, even though you may not know it. And usually people have no problem. Mm -hmm. I think I'm very, I've gone through a lot of therapy. Um, I've done a lot of processing myself. So I'm more comfortable accepting the negative emotion and not that I should say, observing it and not, you know, taking it in. Mm -hmm. Where if you blow up at me, I'm like, okay, well, I did my part and I'm right. just going to move on. Hopefully I planted a seed. I didn't get angry. I didn't cuss you out. So hopefully I planted a seed. Hopefully you'll take that and move yeah. on. Yeah, But I it's definitely a case by case basis. For sure. And I think therapy really helps people to do that in any aspect of life. I think therapy, I saw your post yesterday. <laughs> I love my therapist. I have her at three o'clock today. And um, it really has helped me. In, and we've actually spoken in therapy about some allyship stuff about like, where does this come from? Does this make me a bad mm -hmm. person? I really thought I was very liberal and for all. And so we talk about those things, but it helps a lot. I believe not get reactive to mm -hmm. other like to other people and if you are reactive in any situation you have the right to say I'm not comfortable having this conversation right now I'm gonna have to think about it and we can come back later right exactly. so not holding on to insults or whatever and letting them just kind of be like okay that could be your mm -hmm. opinion that's not my mine opinion. but um and but I think the way that you just to, at least for me, the way that you just delivered that news, hey, you know what, that that made me a little bit uncomfortable. And here's why. Mm -hmm. To me, at this point in my life, I'd be like, Oh, can you tell me more? Mm -hmm. How did yeah. that, you know, like, for example, we were speaking before the recording about tribe and how I said mm -hmm. that I was just redoing my email sequence to my community. And mm -hmm. I had used the word tribe. And somebody brought to my attention that that would be offensive to Native Americans. And as soon as they said that, 
I mean, there might've been a little bit like, really? Like a little old me snicking up. And then I was like, no, you are a hundred percent correct. Yeah. A hundred percent correct. And not even a fledgling of like, oh, we absolutely have to. Well, I meant this. I was just like, I mean, mm-hmm. everyone knows what I meant. I'm sure yeah. the other person knew what I was trying to get at. Yeah. That doesn't matter. So I was like, we'll yeah. change it to community. And I think yeah. that that is a great way. So what if, let me ask you this then. If somebody, if I feel, if somebody were to say that in what I would interpret a more aggressive way as mm-hmm. the recipient, um, is a, is a better thing? Is there a thing to say where we could come back and say, I would love to hear more? Is that like a good kind of come, you know, can you tell me more so that I could understand why that was offensive to somebody? Yeah. So, and I'll, I'll set this stage. I'm also, I've had a great morning. I've had meditation. <laughs> I've written in my journal. I've gotten work done. I'm in a good space. You don't, you know, also whatever, have you don't to, know what that other person has gone through that whole day. Exactly. So, right. You don't know if you're the third microaggression of right. the day. And that person who I said before has said, I can't deal with that right now. I can't deal with that right now. I can't deal with that right now. And then you just get to be the lucky winner of every explosion that she probably, he or she probably wanted to have in those previous moments. So the acceptance is, I acknowledge that you're upset and I don't want to continue this. If you don't want to continue this, I apologize for what I've done. Um, and if you want to talk about it, we can. If not, I get it. It's a high tense. Like, I get it. It's almost yeah. like a you you allow the space. Yep. Yep. You allow the space and you don't require anything else of them in that moment. Right. I um, hear you. Yes. I apologize. Yes. We can continue. I'm happy to chat, chat about it with you. But if that, this is not the time and place, we don't have to go there. Yes. Right. Some people yeah. will say, don't apologize. Yeah, because then I've, it puts I've read onus, that onus on the other person, to, the other forgive person to forgive you. Yeah, I think it might um, have been in the same book. Now I can't remember. I've read so many of them, but they were explaining <laughs> microaggressions as you're walking down the road and someone like uh-huh. accidentally bumps you, and uh-huh. you just are like, okay, no big deal. And then you walk uh-huh. down the road again, the next person bumps you, and you're like, no big deal. And you walk down the road again, someone punches you in the arm, it's no big deal. And then you finally get to the person that literally just grazes your shoulder gotcha. and you turn around and you're like, wait, I didn't, I, it wasn't even that bad mm-hmm. what I said, but it's mm-hmm. this person's been punched over and over and over. They have a big bruise on their arm. Yes. And you were the, just like you were saying, right. Yes. So, and I have heard that actually it had nothing to do. I, I, I don't think it, I think it was actually what I heard about. I'm sorry was more about how to give and accept apologies. I heard it. I think mm. I want to say on, um, I maybe heard it on Brene Brown's podcast. Maybe hmm. but someone was like exactly what you said. They say sometimes if you say, I'm sorry, then yeah. it puts the that person is back on the other person to say, you know, and for like, that, I'd kind of just feel like it's, it is again, dependent on the relationship of you and the person that you're in this experience with. Um, I've definitely heard it more when it comes to like pronouns, using the right pronouns. Um, 
that's what I've heard it most with, but I've started to hear it more when it comes to the anti-racism work too. So it's just something that I say, keep in the back of your mind, depending on who you're, who you're talking to. Right. Yeah. I've actually heard that with like asking for forgiveness or just telling someone like mother, daughter, father, son, friends, you know, when you did mm-hmm. this, it made me feel really upsetting. Yes. You know, yeah. to say, I hear you, not like, I'm sorry, because then it says they want you to forgive them kind of thing. So it goes yeah. back and forth, but it's always interesting. Well, let's, okay. So building allyship is the name of the membership. And I yes. can say it's been life altering. I can never go back to how I thought before. I hope, I hope that the little baby steps that I could take moving forward, not only make my community better, but it helps teach my children mm-hmm. to be better allies. Um, so, and just educate. So tell us about, I know um, enrollment is, so at the time of this recording, this we're recording in January, this episode will probably air next week. So if anything, but why don't you let them know if they happen to be listening to this a month from now, um, mm-hmm. how they can maybe even find you, get on a wait list, et cetera, et cetera. So give us the deets. Yes. So the doors are opening January 31st um, and they will be open. I think it's till February 6th. I need to look at the calendar. It's February 6th or February 7th. Um, I, you can email me info at drjpop.com to get on the wait list or you if you're on instagram i have a nice little link right there that you can add yourself to the wait list and then i will make sure that the doors are open to the wait list first um, i am limiting the amount of spaces that i'm opening up because the intimacy of what we've had the past five months has just been perfect um, it's been a great space for people to be able to connect. Um, We are adding some new things to the community at the request of community members, which I'm really excited about. So we already had, you know, weekly resources in the form of TED Talks, podcasts, articles, research articles that I would drop in there, Um, monthly focus groups, um, monthly um, speakers that would come in and talk on different topics, quarterly reading lists, quarterly donations that we do out of the money that is comes in through the membership and everyone in the membership gets to pick whatever organization we give the money to. Um, we are adding communal viewings of different resources. So the next one we're watching is Between the World and Me. I think that's what we're, yeah, that's what we're watching next this month, actually. Um, so I have the subscription. Everybody's going to come on and, and we're going to watch it together and discuss. I'm actually adding one-on-ones this month as well. So there's a certain amount of 30-minute sessions that you can sign up for each month so that if you have maybe a project that you're working on, an initiative you want to start, or something that you're trying to work through, I'll hop on a call with you. And we can just discuss it and and hash it out and hopefully give you some action steps to take. Um, We added a, uh, what is it? A media and entertainment Mm -hmm. section. So one of the requests was, okay, we're learning about the, not negative, but we're learning the stuff that has gotten us to this point. We're learning kind of the icky stuff. 
how do you learn about the positive cultural stuff that's going on in these different groups? And so we added media entertainment so people can start adding movies and books from different BIPOC authors. We're going to start discussing ableism and LGBTQIA+, because you know for me, allyship is, is for anyone in an oppressed or marginalized population. So I'm super excited to have the people that have already been there ready to connect with the next group that's coming in. And it's that's the community aspect that I want. There will always be people at different stages of the journey. And the point is to be able to guide or pull or you know help someone through this. So I'm excited. It's amazing. So uh, people, really, if you're interested in learning more about the history, um, it really is eye-opening. And if you think you know everything, please let me tell you, you do not know the whole story. (laughs) Um, And Jennifer is like amazing. And the community is amazing. It really, really is. So if you're interested in learning, just being part of the community, having a place you know, an open judgment-free space where you can ask questions and have intelligent dialogue. Um, it's amazing. So building allyship, we'll link everything up in the show notes. So info at, is it Dr. J-Pop? DrJpop.com. Yep. And follow her on Instagram, people. She is awesome, but it's Dr. Period, right? Dr. Period. Yeah. Okay. J-pop on Instagram. So Jennifer, thank you so much as always. I'm already thinking of when I can have you back already. Female (laughs) empowered or when I get to come out to uh, Tennessee. Nashville. Well, not right now, but maybe in 2022. (laughs) Exactly. When we can travel again. Well, thank you so much again for joining us and people stay tuned for another edition of Female Fridays next week. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Female Empowered. If you like what we covered today, please leave a review for the show. This helps other female fitness and wellness professionals find the podcast and lets me know I'm sharing helpful information with all of you. If you'd love to get even more insights and find resources to help you market, streamline, and grow your clinic or client-based business, you can visit me at kristagurka.com or follow me on Instagram at kristagurka. That's at C-H-R-I-S-T-A-G-U-R-K-A. See y'all next time.